Side Hustle to Small Business is brought to you by Hiscox Insurance. Hiscox understands small business insurance isn't like other insurance. To learn more about how Hiscox Insurance can protect your business, go to Hiscox.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. I'd say the first year was just trying to figure out how do I convey the value that I've already established? How do I sell that to complete strangers? Because it's one thing to do it to people in your network or, or to get a referral, which is invaluable, especially as you start out. But it's another to just get a cold email from someone or a cold phone call and say, tell me about your business and how are you going to help me do what you did for that other company where you raised you know, over a million dollars? How are you going to do that for me? And, and so that took a while for me to get that pitch down and to feel confident explaining it and leveraging that value into a relationship. Welcome to Side Hustle to Small Business. I'm Lou Casal. On this show, I talk with entrepreneurs who chased after a dream without any idea of how it would turn out. Let's face it, nothing great is achieved without risk. Do you have what it takes? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. As we fade into this episode, I'm thinking about how we all get started in our careers. Regardless of the industry, the first thing you have to do is get your foot in the door. You have to get in the game before you can take your shot. When it comes to breaking into an industry, there's one industry door that has always presented a significant challenge. It's the door to Hollywood, the entertainment industry. Today, you'll meet Greg Frank, founder of Early Bird Studios, a video production company that specializes in producing crowdfunding campaigns. I talk with Greg about how he began his career in Hollywood and how he found his way to becoming an entrepreneur. You know, Greg, when you hear the word Hollywood, you immediately think of all the people moving out there every day to chase after their dreams. And that's where we should fade in, as they say, to your story. You showed up in Hollywood like so many others before you. You were a recent college graduate with a degree in filmmaking, and I'm sure you were ready to get behind the camera and make movie magic happen. What were those first few months in Hollywood like, and how did you get your foot in the door? Great question. I mean, uh, to start, you know, I had always heard the old cliche, you know, it's about who you know, not what you know. And to be honest, I came in very naive and, and I didn't think that was the case. I found out and, you know, keep in mind, this is about 2011, 2012. So the media landscape that we're in today, it, it was starting to form and, and take shape, but not what it is now. So it was still a bit traditional. And I found out very quickly that that old adage, at least back then, was true. And because I knew nobody, I didn't get very far very quickly. It took me many months of knocking on doors, and I submitted to all the big studios, all the little studios, and really wasn't getting much until, fortunately, I stumbled upon a Craigslist ad that said, come intern for the company that made District 9. And being a sci-fi fan myself, loved that film and said, you know what, that's a cool opportunity. I emailed the recruiter, sent a very nice note in my very light resume. She brought me in and we had a great interview. And about a week later, she said, you know what? I want you to come back in. You've got the job. You get to intern unpaid, of course, for free. And sure enough, I started to, at the time I was living down with my parents in Irvine, which was about an hour to hour and a half commute. So I, I started to do that. 
And at the same time, started to use my relationships with my brother who was up here and some friends who were at UCLA to crash on their couches. And really, that first orientation at the internship, I'll never forget, there were about about a dozen of us that they had selected to be interns. And they turned to everyone afterward and said, okay, so who's ready to stay and start working today? And I was I was one of two people, actually, who raised their hands. And everyone else you know, went home and said, we'll start working when you're ready for us. And that's really what started it. You know, not to get too far ahead of the story, but the two of us were the ones that ultimately made it out of the internship program and into employment in the space. So that was about overall from from start to finish. That was ten months of working for free, sleeping on couches, switching off between my brother and my friends in college still. And yeah, it was it was a grind. You know, it was a ten month grind to get my foot in the door there. But that's how it starts. So you went from paying your dues, as they say, working for free, that led to a full-time job. And you also realized at that time to sort of move your career forward, you had the idea that you wanted to start producing videos to actually showcase your talent. Can you talk about how your side hustle got started? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, coming into Hollywood, you know, I, I at the time wasn't very aware of the business side of Hollywood and what that looks like. Obviously, I was very familiar with the creative side, the directing, the writing, you know, that's really what we studied in film school. It wasn't so much the financials, the deal making, things of that nature. So I knew coming in, especially after the first couple of months that I wasn't going to get many uh, opportunities to put my imprint on, you know, the creative process when it comes to 10 million, 20 million, 40 million dollar Hollywood movies. There were higher ups that were far more qualified. So I said, you know what? I'm handling the day-to-day responsibilities, you know, getting my foot in the door, building those connections, but in order to not only build my own portfolio for my own career, but also just because that's who I am. I like to creatively express myself. I said, you know what? I, I need to start adding value however I can. And I need to start building a creative reel, a demo reel is what a lot of people out here refer to it as. So I basically started out uh, and said, you know what? I've got a film school background. I know how to handle a camera. I, I learned editing in high school. Fortunately, I had a great program that taught me the basics and started to just reach out to my network of people mostly around my age that were entrepreneurs, inventors, you know, and some people actually came to me at the same time, coincidentally enough. And I started to produce really low budget work for different entrepreneurs and business people at various levels of success. And it just turned out that the majority of these guys and women that were coming to me and I was going out to were launching their products or their businesses through what was then the emerging field of crowdfunding, Kickstarter, Indiegogo, platforms like that. So while I was at the day job, you know, at the film studio, answering calls, handling reception duties, stocking the kitchen, doing all the basic kind of office assistant level stuff, I was spending my nights and my weekends working with these entrepreneurs to craft their stories and and help them launch their products and their businesses through this relatively new mechanism. So that's kind of how the side hustle started. It was a need for creative expression, but also very selfishly, uh, I needed to build a better reel to position myself for better career growth. How challenging was it to manage a full-time job and a, and a side hustle? And you know, with regards to the side hustle, how did you find the time to work on, on video projects? Was it nights, weekends? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's definitely that that stereotype, you know, when you're starting out. And really, that's how I had to do it, you know, was the nights and the weekends. The nice part about my day job was that 
at least to start before I started to climb the ladder a bit. The responsibilities were very low key. The hours were very reasonable. And that gave, that afforded me really the time and the energy when I got home at night or on the weekends to really craft my business and, and to start working on this. Because so many people who have a great idea for a side hustle or a new business, their day jobs are so intense or so demanding that by the time they get home, they don't even have the energy, you know, the fire to really put down the work that you need to, to get something off the ground. So I was fortunate in that sense that the first, I'd say, six to 10 months of my career at the studio were very light. And I came home, I was still fired up, I could write, I could edit, I could direct. It also forced me to start learning how to find talent, to find vendors, to find people who could come in and collaborate with me and and that I could delegate some of the work to, to help me bring this to fruition. So I was very fortunate in that sense. And also, you know, I have to say, I was very fortunate that at the time, I was young, I didn't have, you know, a lot of responsibilities elsewhere in my life. So I was very fortunate that I was able to devote a lot of those nights and weekends to get this off the ground. But that's exactly how it was. It was it was a night and weekend hustle. I know at some point, one of the crowdfunding videos you made went viral, and it, and it really took off. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. But when did you start to think that there might be a bigger opportunity around these crowdfunding videos that it could be something more than just a, a side hustle? So it was about, I would say about a year and a half, maybe two years into the side hustle. I'm at the film studio. I'm no longer a general kind of office assistant or development assistant. By this point, I had been promoted to an executive assistant in the marketing and acquisitions department. So my responsibilities were growing, but at the same time, so were the clients that I had started to work with about, you know, like I said, roughly a year and a half, two years earlier, their businesses had started to grow and scale. And fortunately, one of them, actually the first business I ever worked with, they were very savvy, very savvy business people and really took a lean, lean startup and scaled it quickly. And they came to me and said, Greg, we've got this new product. It's going to be, we think it's going to be a killer. Can you work on the video with us and all the marketing assets? So I did. And that's actually was the very first production, funny enough, that I couldn't make it to set. We had to film during the week. So I delegated it to my director, my cinematographer. I was very clear with everyone what we needed to get out of it. And by the time, you know, a couple months after that, that the video went live, like you said, it went viral. I believe it was on Indiegogo at the time, and it did roughly roughly 1.5 million in sales. And with our video getting hundreds of thousands of views, very high engagement, lots of positive comments on, on YouTube and, and social. And I said to myself, wow, okay, there, there might be something here, you know, because back then our, our budgets were almost non-existent. And to see how our client, to their credit, was able to take a set of assets that was really low in terms of investment, but high in terms of the production quality, to take that and leverage it to this type of ROI, that's when the light bulb sort of went off in my head, that this this could be something bigger than it was. And that's really what fed the, the fuel in me, because by then, I was at a very interesting internal crossroads. Do I do I focus exclusively on my day job? It's going well. Do I focus exclusively on my side hustle? That decision would almost be made for me down the line. But that's when I started to see that potential in this business model. Somewhere along the way, I know you moved on to a, another job that was that was right in your wheelhouse. You actually went to work for a, a marketing agency that specialized in launching brands on crowdfunding sites. What was that experience like? And what kind of impact did it have on your side hustle? 
It was overall, it was a great experience, definitely invaluable in terms of teaching me so much about business because the way I use as an analogy is if the film studio, I was there for about two and a half, almost three years, that was almost like my business undergrad, you know, my business school teaching me just the day-to-day operations of a business, how to conduct oneself in meetings, sales calls, relationships. So really, by the time I got to the marketing agency, in retrospect, it really became almost my, my grad school, you know, almost my my MBA, not to equate the two. I know they're obviously very different, but that was more or less my accelerated education into how to launch brands and how to get a business, both because of the nature of the agency. You know, the, Like you said, the business was to take other people's ideas, other people's products, help them launch their business to great success. But at the same time, the agency itself was growing and needed to grow rapidly. Because when I walked in the door, Funny enough, the first day on the job was what was for many years, we launched the number two all-time campaign on Indiegogo. My first day on the job, I walked in and I said, okay, I'm ready to, I'm ready to learn the ropes on how to launch a campaign. And boom, we had a campaign that made millions and millions of dollars overnight. It was like a business's dream, but kind of a startup nightmare. You know, we had to catch up. We were getting all these new leads. We were getting all these new applications. And the partners at the time said, you know what? One of them said, I'm going to handle sales. The other one said, I'm going to handle the actual marketing of these campaigns. And they both turned to me and said, Greg, you are in charge of basically the day-to-day operations of finding talent, hiring talent, training talent, and then also simultaneously managing your accounts, managing your campaigns, and building a process that will allow us to scale. So when I walked in the door outside of that major, major campaign on day one, we were launching about one to two products a month. And then after about a year and a half of long hours in the trenches with some amazing people, we were up to six to 12 product launches a month at a very profitable streak. So it really was that, to me, that sort of MBA equivalent in the trenches, learn the ropes, learn the numbers, learn the the management side. And that really informed how I, of course, set up my business. You mentioned earlier that you eventually came to a crossroads and you decided to take the leap and take your side hustle full time. Was that a big transition or did you just feel like, okay, it's official, this is my business and it's time to go take on the world? Yeah, it was a little bit of both, but of course, it was absolutely a big transition. You know, to to say that it was 100% smooth sailing or I was absolutely confident in my abilities or the business's abilities, that would not be true. There was definitely hesitation. But really, you know, working backwards from when I made that transition, you know, I, I had kind of fallen in love with the Kickstarter, Indiegogo crowdfunding model for launching businesses. By then, I had done over 60 product launches, the vast majority of which were successful. So I had a pretty good grasp on the industry in that accelerated window. And I kept seeing over and over again that, you know, no matter how good the product was, if the marketing assets weren't up to par, and by that I mean the pitch videos, the videos for advertising on Facebook and Instagram, and the photos that we use to build pages, build emails, if those aren't up to par, then the results were extremely lackluster, if not a failure, even if the product had a really great value proposition. So for months, I kept sort of dropping these breadcrumbs to to the partners at the agency, you know, that this was something I wanted to potentially bring in-house. I thought it was a great value add to our customers. I thought it could be a great add to our bottom line. And frankly, selfishly, 
I wanted to kind of get back to my roots. You know, that's the world I came out of from film school to the film studio is storytelling. So I tried to position myself as someone who could bring those services in-house and branch away from operations and focus on content. So I brought this to them in, in a number of different ways over, over a few months. And, you know, they respectfully at the time, you know, declined. It wasn't right for their business model. And that was fine. But by then, the fire inside of me for, for pursuing this idea had, had somewhat taken over. So I sat down with the partners and I said, look, this is what I'd like to do. I'm attached to it now. And they said, you know what, we appreciate it, but that's not a, a business we want to get into at this point. It's not right for us right now. So at that point, I said, all right, I've loved my time here. I've learned so much in, in such a small amount of time, but this is something I need to pursue. And it was a very tough decision. Again, you know, fortunately, I had the support of a great support system of people in my life who pushed me to do that, including my girlfriend at the time, now wife. You know, if it wasn't for her and, and people like her that said, you know what, you're young, you got time. If it doesn't work out, fail fast, you know, take the leap and, and give it a shot. So with the, only about $5,000 in savings, I took about a, a two-week vacation after that break from the agency. And then I got right to work. And that's where I've been for the last three years. So it was a leap, but I had a good support group around me and, and really three to six months, I'd say, head start in terms of starting to put the pieces together in a less formal way. As I hear you say $5,000 in savings, I'm thinking in terms of Hollywood speak, that would be considered an ultra low budget. Am I right? That wouldn't even be considered a budget. That would be, <laughs> that would, that would be considered just the overhead to do due diligence on a, on a script. Or you know, we were, when we were at the film studio, we were optioning scripts for well above that. So that was peanuts. It was nothing. We'll be right back after a quick break. Side Hustle to Small Business is brought to you by Hiscox Insurance. Hiscox, the business insurance experts who tailor intelligent insurance solutions to fit each business's very specific needs. Get a quote or purchase a policy at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, encourage courage. Welcome back. Greg has taken the leap and he's taken his side hustle full time. If we were writing a screenplay about Greg's story, this would be the turning point. So... You're a first-time business owner. Can you talk a little bit about some of the more challenging moments you've faced and, and how have you handled them over the years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there were a lot. There's there's no doubt about it. I mean, you, you learn to deal with clients. Uh, you learn to deal with improving your product. But you know, really what I found is at the beginning – you need to build a mechanism that proves value. You have to show, you know, case studies, in other words. You have to be, and this goes back to, fortunately, I had somewhat of the foresight to start building that portfolio on my side hustle so that by the time I was ready to open shop, so to speak, I had work and I had results. So that, you know, to your point that we talked about earlier with the, the campaign that went a bit viral, I was able to point to that and leverage that because regardless of how good your, your business idea is, if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. So really... I wasn't big personally on selling myself. I wasn't a natural salesman by any means. I would say, you know, I, I was a, a good team worker and, you know, was really open-minded to taking in all the different avenues of business, you know, whether it was accounting, legal, sales, marketing from all the businesses I had worked in, but I wasn't, I wasn't a great salesman myself. So that was really, I'd say the first year was just trying to figure out how do I convey the value that I've already established? How do I sell that to complete strangers? Because it's one thing to do it 
to people in your network or, or to get a referral, which is invaluable, especially as you start out. But it's another to just get a cold email from someone or a cold phone call and say, tell me about your business and how are you going to help me do what you did for that other company where you raised you know, over a million dollars? How are you going to do that for me? And so that took, that took a while for me to get that pitch down and to feel confident explaining it and leveraging that value into a relationship. So sales was by far and away the biggest challenge at first. You know, but then of course, there's also taking the, that $5,000 I had, you know, and after I bought, you know, a computer that was able to edit properly and a camera that I could shoot on, I had very little left. So I, <laughs> I'm talking peanuts, a couple hundred bucks. So I had to put that towards, you know, setting up the business in the proper way with the legal side, uh, setting up the books the right way on the accounting and bookkeeping side. And there's all these kind of logistical challenges that one faces because there's no, you know, unless you go to business school or, you know, you have come from a family you know, that's, that's able to provide you with capital. There's no guidebook for this, especially back then, you know, almost, you know, roughly three, four years ago, there was no how to. So I really had to put all these pieces together, identify all these problems, all these solutions, and really just make them happen with very little in my pocket. So you have to be resourceful. You have to be, as one of my first bosses said, you have to be lean and mean. And it it took me a little while to get there. When you started out, I'm I'm guessing the competition was light in your particular space, but I'm sure like everything else, other competitors have started to pop up over the years. How are you continuing to innovate to stay ahead of the competition? Well, it's interesting in this space, of course, because we operate, you know, our, our, our business is in that cross, that cross section between media and technology, which today with all the media and tech firms is such a key driver of the economic space. But really, media is constantly evolving, right? So we have to be on top of that and we have to be able to provide those services. So for example, just a few years ago when we started out, no one was asking us for vertical videos, right? For videos for mobile, for Facebook stories, Instagram stories. Now that's something standard that we offer. You know, that's, that's a big part of it. Or social ads. You know, social ads, it was primarily just Facebook back then. Now it's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and any number of different distribution platforms that have come up. So it really, you know, on the granular level, it's really about offering those services that are constantly in line with the latest trends and having the tools and the know-how to do it. So we're constantly hiring new people. We're constantly looking for new vendors that can add those that value to our work in a very modern kind of cutting edge way because that's right where we are, like I said, is at the forefront of that. You know, and on the larger level, how we compete is, you know, through our messaging, through our value and and what we've developed, I should say, in that area is an ROI-centric message. So, you know, when we first started out and competitors started to prop up, it was all about who raised the most money, you know, for their clients, who's got the biggest portfolio. Nowadays, that doesn't matter so much. The way we're able to compete is by maintaining the highest ROI per project in the industry. And that's something that we're really proud of is, is we tell everyone, you know, whatever, whatever budget you have to work with, whatever we ultimately agree to, we're going to build an ROI-centric production around that. So that when you're, when all is said and done, you've gone through your campaign, you're going to look back and say, wow, these guys gave us exponential return. And right now, as of today, that's been a 22 to one return on investments that have been given to us to, to create content with. So that's really how we've positioned ourselves uh, in, in this very competitive space. 
You know, Greg, when you think about the business of Hollywood, it's simple. You make a movie, it's either going to be a hit or a flop. And if it's a flop, you may not get a second chance to make another movie. And I, and I see a parallel to your work. If, if you create a crowdfunding video for a client and it doesn't deliver on their expectations, they may not get a second chance at it. And of course, it's impossible to know with any certainty how any audience will react. But how do you get your head around that? And have you ever you know, said to a potential client, I don't think I can deliver the kind of result you're expecting? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great question because that's absolutely the case. Anyone in this space, as you said, to your analogy, there is no studio who has never had a flop. You know, even these days, Netflix, you know, they have flops and, and they just kind of quietly pull them off the platforms, you know, without people noticing. And that's inevitable in any business. And in crowdfunding, you know, the industry average for a successful campaign, last time I checked, was around somewhere between 30, 36%. So let's just call it a 33% success rate was the general standard. You know, we are fortunately able to say that our campaigns, and we've done well over 30 as this business, they've succeeded about 75% of the time. So almost double, more than double actually the industry average, but there's still that 25% that don't succeed. There are those campaigns that we think are going to be just absolute home runs and they fizzle out. And occasionally there is the opposite where there's one that we say, okay, it's got great, you know, some solid potential, but then it just blows up and, and it turns into an absolute beast. So there is no perfect way to predict, you know, success. And of course, there is the emotional side of it. You know, we take, we try not to as a business, but it's inevitable that when you're dealing with startups, some of which are very self-funded, cash-strapped, solo entrepreneurs, mom and pops, you know, when when they don't succeed, you know, you said that was their one shot. And it does become very personal to us and personal to me because that you know, that's the last thing that I want is someone to come to us, invest, invest in us and invest in their campaign and have it not go well. Like I said, it's, it's the, the exception to the rule, but it happens. And, and the best way that we can sort of predict or, or try to understand how well it's going to do is really using a quantitative approach is really data centric. So a lot of times what I'll suggest to entrepreneurs that are interested in working with us is create some very light content or pay us a very low investment to create some very light content and then take that to your demographics. You know, that's the beauty of social and especially advertising on social like Facebook and Instagram is that you're able to micro target to your audiences so you can go after them basically present your value proposition, present your pitch and gauge their interest. And if they sign up and they're interested and there's a lot of momentum around the idea and community engagement, then that's a pretty good indicator that you're probably going to do really well with the, you know, the right amplification of those efforts. But if the, if the response is not there, then you gotta, you, you know, you gotta kind of go back to the drawing board and, and really revisit it. So there's been many campaigns, you know, that have been all over the results spectrum. We try to do as much much of that research intensive process ahead of time during what we call pre-launch in order to you know not uh, be surprised but occasionally there still are those surprises so it could be a tough business for some and I've unfortunately worked with teams that it just didn't work out and that was their one shot and I've also seen the opposite you know in, in terms of I've seen people come to the table give it their all they they, they follow the process and now they have, you know, dozens of employees under them or they've, they've exited their company already. It can go both ways. It's still a wild west world, but we're working on it. You know, you're in business to help your clients tell their story. And a lot of new entrepreneurs struggle with storytelling. And, and by that, I mean, they literally find it difficult to talk about their company, why it exists, what makes it unique and different. Is there any advice you would give to other entrepreneurs out there who would maybe in that spot? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really have to you really have to hold a mirror up to yourself in a very objective and frankly authentic way. You've really got to look at yourselves and say, okay, where is our value and how do we transfer that value? Because really starting and running a business, in my opinion at least, is all about the exchange of value. And how you how you do that is through the human element, right? So yourself, your work, your sweat equity, your time, and the people who work for you, with you, and underneath you, you all collectively have to connect with another group of people and exchange that value. And inherently, when you have those conversations, you have those personalities, you start to develop a story there, right? You have the characters to your story. But I think it was someone like Aaron Sorkin who said, you know, you're never going to have a great story until you introduce the phrases, but and then. So there has to be a challenge, right? There has to be a roadblock. And you obviously, as a business person, have to get to that final climax of the story where you provide the solution. So you have to be able to turn the mirror on yourself and authentically say, okay, who are the characters of this story? What are the challenges that we face on a daily basis, quarterly basis? What challenges do we face with our clients? And how do we overcome them together? That's the value that you exchange and, and really is the foundation of your business. And, and that's the core to your story. You know, with us, that value is people come to us with oftentimes very little to sometimes modest means, and they want to amplify it. They want to scale their business, but there's a ton of roadblocks. And first and foremost, they need great content to make that connection with their potential audience and to convert viewers into backers or into customers. And that's what we do is we provide that bridge of content to make those connections and exchange that value on their behalf. So really to any business person out there, you have to turn the mirror on yourself and, and look at it objectively as if you were you know, trying to read your own story in a book. Who are the characters? Where are the hurdles? And, and where are the solutions? When you step back and you think about it and watch the body of work you've created, what are you most proud of? I would answer that twofold. I would say on the largest scale, you know, on the macro side of things, you know, I'm just happy that I've been able to be from my career in the agency to my own business these days. I've helped launch over, I want to say over 120 businesses these days. It's probably even higher than that. You know, I've helped launch 120 businesses and with my team, of course. I, I couldn't do it alone, but we've helped raise in this business over $10 million for our clients. In my side of crowdfunding, my career, I've helped raise over $26 million for my clients. And that's not even including, you know, the post campaign revenue of, of some of one company reported 50 million annual revenue and they had hundreds and hundreds of employees. So really, I'm just proud on a large scale of being able to help jumpstart these businesses, create jobs, add value to people's lives and, and give them some independence. But on a minor scale, you know, I would pat myself on the back a little bit and say I'm proud of what I've built. But that would be a bit false to say without the help of all the people that have become part of our team, whether it's not even day to day business, and, and they just have a role in supporting me and supporting my partners, my vendors, my team members, you know, our, our spouses, our parents, our children, our friends, but then also the people I work with on a day to day basis. I'm so proud of how whether it's the, my directors, my photographers, my producers, even you know, my bookkeepers, my lawyers, my makeup artists. I'm just proud of how everyone, I've been fortunate enough to find a team and, and help curate a team of people who 
put the pride of their own work ahead of the bottom line oftentimes and really work with me on conveying that value and, and going above and beyond on so many projects. There, there are dozens and dozens of our projects where vendors of mine have taken less money or put in extra hours or gone the extra mile and no one knows about it, but they did it because they could and they did it because it was the right thing. And, and I'm just proud to work with people like that on a day-to-day basis. You know, there's a person out there right now who is about to, to start their own business. What advice would you give to that person as, as they get ready to take the leap? If you're thinking about taking the leap, you know, one thing to keep in mind, you know, again, it's all about the exchange of value and, and you need to start slow and you'll go faster later. So identify where that value is, identify how you're going to be able to exchange that value and start to put the pieces in place. Don't just quit your job tomorrow unless you're absolutely fed up with it or you already have the means to do so. You know, you have to do so responsibly, which means there's also people in your life that are going to be affected by your decision. So you really need to do your due diligence. On top of that, I would say, you know, the only expectations you should have are for yourself. You know, I came into my business even a little bit naive thinking, oh, you know, my clients are, are, are going to, you know, follow the process exactly. Most of them do, but some of them aren't going to, or that everyone that I work with is going to, you know, value this business as much as I do. That's not the case. You know, a lot of people are not equity stakeholders. They're not founders. They're not as passionate about this business, but they're passionate about their own work and how they contribute to it. So you have to keep those expectations for yourself and not everyone else. You know, don't ride the emotional roller coaster. There will be ups, there will be downs. You got to stay even keep healed, you know, learn to delegate sooner than later, especially when it comes to things that are your weaknesses. You know, for instance, when it comes to bookkeeping and accounting, it is absolutely crucial, you know, your numbers, but it is not absolutely crucial that you do the bookkeeping and accounting forever. I mean, case in point, the Bezos of the world used to drive the box, the Amazon packages to the post office. He sure doesn't do that anymore. Or Blakely, you know, used to sew her own fabrics. She definitely doesn't do that anymore. Um, and then I'd say lastly, you know, as, as kind of my overarching advice would be you stay hungry by staying healthy. So, you know, a part of my own personal journey was really learning to be my best self meant sleeping properly, having value there, eating right, exercising right, being in a good state of mind and a good place uh, day in and day out. Because if you try to start or maintain or scale a business and you're not at 100%, the business will never be at 100%. It is absolutely a direct correlation. I don't care how cliche it is or how many lists or BuzzFeed articles or what have you of these are the things the top entrepreneurs do. It's true. You need to sleep. You need to eat well. You need to be in a good place mentally, physically, and spiritually. Otherwise, your business will never, never reach its potential. Greg, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Lou. It's been an honor and a pleasure. When it's time to interview a guest on the show, I usually arrive way early to the interview to go over my notes and research and to gather my thoughts on the guest I'm going to be speaking with. For this interview, I arrived late. Let me clarify that. I was still way early for the interview, but Greg, the early bird, he was already there and waiting for me. And that's the moral of this story. If you want to find success in business, be who you say you are, provide value, and deliver on the promise you made your customers. If you do that, it should be happily ever after. Fade out. That's our show for today. If you've enjoyed listening, please subscribe, rate us, and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps new listeners find the show, and we greatly appreciate your support. 
If you know someone who has a great side hustle to small business story to share, drop us a line at hiscox.com slash side hustle to small business. Side hustle to small business is produced by Hiscox Insurance. I'm Lou Casal. It's time to stop listening and start hustling. This podcast is provided as general information only and is not intended to be business, insurance, or legal advice for any particular person or entity.